about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. One Kings chapter nineteen verses nine to the end of chapter nineteen, um, and if you remember from last week, uh, Elijah's just reached Horeb, the mountain of God, and that's where we're picking up from. There he went into a cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him, "What are you doing here, Elijah?" He replied, "I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword." I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the twelfth pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, friends. Let's pray as we turn again to this story of Elijah. Father, take and use these words in our hearts and our minds for the glory of your Son and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Today we reach the last in our series of sermons on the prophet Elijah. If this is your first week, a bit weird coming in at the end, but you'll survive. Um, just to give you, put you in the picture, though, last week 
we left Elijah in a cave on Mount Sinai, otherwise known as Mount Horeb. Uh, and he's made, having, he having made a long, bitter journey from Israel after his plans to win back the kingdom of Israel failed spectacularly, or so he thought. Uh, Elijah had had an amazing victory on Mount Carmel. If you weren't here or you've never read it, read chapter 18. Um, only to see, though, it all unravel almost straight away and to find himself again alone and vulnerable. And, and basically, it breaks him. But then we saw last week how God picks him up, puts him back together again, sets him on his feet and keeps him going, and he makes it all the way to the end of his journey at the famous mountain on which Moses had met with God all those years ago. It's in the book of Exodus. This is the mountain on which the Ten Commandments were given. But that's not to say that when Elijah gets there, he's back on top, riding high. He really isn't. Elijah reaches Mount Horeb in a kind of fog of gloom and dismay and worries are burning in his mind. The word of the Lord came to him, we're told, in verse 9 and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And look, look how Elijah responds, verse 10. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. On the surface, this isn't exactly a question or a complaint. It's just a statement of facts as Elijah sees them. But, of course, what it actually is is a cry of desperation. It's an expression of frustration and bewilderment. Elijah just lays before the, the Lord the way everything has failed. The future, as he sees it, has really closed down. And he can't see any way this thing ends well anymore. Why has Elijah come here? He's come to lay before God his hopelessness. The loss of hope is a terrible thing. Because when we lose hope, we lose the ability to act when the possibilities of the future all narrow down and become dark, it sucks the purpose out of our action. It makes us aimless. That's what's happened to Elijah here. It's also, I think, something we need to think about. Because in all sorts of ways, the world we're in and our society is threatened by a loss of hope. Now, I hope, I hope that you don't feel this too acutely, but you might. Different things are producing this threat of hopelessness. There's the looming collapse of the international order of, of kind of rules-based nation-states. There's the dismal state of politics and the collapse of institutions that have been really central to the way our society has functioned for a long time. But probably above all, there is the threat of climate catastrophe. Now, this doesn't weigh as heavily upon all of us as it does on some people, but 
There's no doubt that for many people, certainly a lot of people I meet around here, the reality of climate change is squeezing out hopefulness about the future. Christians can also feel a bit hopeless these days about the church, the problems the church faces, the state of its leadership, or just the increasing marginalization of Christianity in our society, the way people just don't care much about Christianity, and the apparent lack of success of the gospel. Some of us, too, are threatened by a loss of hope at a much more personal level, more intimate level. The future can seem closed down to us, not because of huge world forces, but just because of things that have happened to us, accidents that have befallen us, maybe dumb mistakes we've made, things we're stuck with. For some of us, it is a constant struggle not to let the future become too bleak. Well, if hopelessness in one way or another is something we need to think about, I reckon we ought to sit up and notice the fact that Elijah finds some kind of answer to his hopelessness here. He comes to God with a red, raw sense of not knowing how to put the pieces together and bewilderment and distress in the face of his situation, but he goes away renewed, renewed in hopeless, in hopefulness and faith and ready to press on. So how does that happen? What happens to him? Well, happily, three things, I think. What Elijah learned. First, I think he's reminded that God remains God. Second, I think he's reminded, he learns that there are things that he can't see and there are possibilities he has not imagined. And third, I think he's shown that God's word is never stuck. So let's get into them. First, the first and most important thing that happens to Elijah is that he just meets God. He has stated his case, he's expressed his hopelessness, and now God responds. But he doesn't first respond by giving Elijah a straight answer or an explanation. No, he responds by inviting Elijah into his presence in a way that is incredibly rare in the Bible. Look from verse 11, look what happens. The Lord said, these are also in your outlines if you want to look at it there. Go and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. The extraordinary things that happen here draw attention to the fact that Elijah is here. He's meeting, he's not just meeting another force from this world, but he's meeting the invisible and holy God. There is a series of three forces that are 
of this world, but are kind of a bit, a bit weird, or at least they're, they're not bodily. Wind, earthquake, fire, they're not things you can touch in a straightforward sense. They don't, they don't have substance in the way like a rock does. But the point is that even these slightly mysterious forces, they are not where God is. They just prepare Elijah for his becoming present, for God's becoming present. God's presence happens after these when there is... That was a weird noise. Maybe eerie, given what we're reading. Anyway, God's presence happens after these when there is a gentle whisper. Now, this phrase is actually weirder than it seems in our English version. Other English versions are worth looking at on this. It's literally the sound of thin silence. Another English translation has it really nicely when it says the sound of sheer silence. The point of this phrase is to cancel itself out. A sound of total silence. God arrives in a space that is somehow full, in an absence that is thick with presence. This is an amazing moment. To understand the significance of it, though, it's also worth knowing that something very similar had happened to Moses when he stood on this same mountain. Now, this is a slight diversion, but I think it's really interesting. But if you're not interested, just just tune out for a couple of minutes. You'll live. We'll be back with this passage. But the story about Moses is told in the book of Exodus, chapters 33 and 34. And it's a moment at which, like with this moment with Elijah, everything looks like it is falling apart. The Israelites have failed at the very first test by making an idol, a golden calf, and the threat of God's punishment hangs over everything. But in that context, a new intimacy opens up between God and Moses, and God promises to send his presence with Moses as he leads Israel. And the climax comes when Moses stands on the mountain in the cleft of a rock, maybe exactly where Elijah was here, and God passes by. Here's how it's described in Exodus. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. He's talking to Moses here. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll remove my hand and you'll see my back, but my face must not be seen. The uncertainty and the fragility of Israel's position in Exodus is answered by the presence of God by Moses being permitted to come into the presence of God who is more merciful and more compassionate than anybody has a right to expect, whose name is his goodness and free mercy, but who is still dangerous in his holiness. Moses cannot see his face, only his back. 
And something very similar happens now to Elijah. He is invited invited to come into the presence of the Lord in a way that no one had been since Moses. He stands on the mountain just where Moses had stood. And he's made aware that he is standing before the Lord, but he cannot look. He has to cover his head with his cloak. Elijah is being reminded here, probably of many things, but most of all, I think, that however bad things look, there is no actual risk at the centre of things because God is actually real. That may seem like a kind of lame point for a sermon to have, that God's real. But it is actually my point, that that is the point I'm trying to make. Elijah is reminded here that God is not, he's not just a story or a tradition or an idea. He's, he's, He's really God, a living forceful presence and he's the same God he's always been the same one who met with Moses the God of holiness and power and grace I think the silence the absence points to this there's no new revelation to be had there's no new word to be spoken God remains the same the same God before whom Moses stood utterly full of power utterly faithful And so whatever happens, Elijah can know that he has not made a mistake. His zeal has not been for no one and no reason. For the God he worships is real. The first and most important response to hopelessness is to remember that God remains God. That there is a real living God who is before all things and to whom all things run. Because if that is true, all is not lost. All can never be lost. Because before all things and forever, there is an inexhaustible source of life and power and goodness. Have you forgotten to believe in God. That doesn't mean, though, that Elijah's questions vanish or that they cease to be important. It's not like Elijah's complaint is just swallowed up by the presence of God and set aside. No, what Elijah is wrestling with is real and important, and now it gets a hearing. He's invited to bring his question again. God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah gives the same speech again. The same questions are there. Verse 14, he replied, I've been very zealous, and says the same thing. But again, though, God doesn't respond by giving Elijah an explanation of what is going on. Instead, he responds with a command. Did you see that? A command. But it is a command 
that shows Elijah that there are things that he doesn't see. Suddenly, as God gives this command, a horizon of possibility opens up before Elijah that he did not know was there. And as this horizon opens, it becomes clear to Elijah that that he had actually been wrong in all sorts of ways. The Lord tells Elijah to return to where he came, verse 16, which I'm sure was a bit of a bummer, actually. He's gone a long way to get there, and God says, go back, okay? Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. And there, he says, anoint a new king of Aram. Aram was the country to the northeast of Israel, modern-day Syria. He's told also to anoint a new king of Israel, Jehu, son of Nimshi, And finally, he is told to anoint a new prophet, Elisha, son of Shaphat. These three, Elijah is told, will bring a sword to Israel. Elijah discovers here that actually, after all, he wasn't wrong when he thought that the tide had turned at Mount Carmel. The tide had turned. It just wasn't going to look like Elijah had expected. No, something much bigger and in many ways more frightening was unfolding. Ahab and Jezebel would be overthrown by invasion from from Aram and by a new dynasty of Jehu and a new wave of prophecy. Elijah discovers that his ministry has actually been the beginning of an enormous change in the nation of Israel. It just wasn't going to look like what he'd expected. But also, Elijah hears that he was really wrong when he thought that he was alone. Did you notice verse 18? I I didn't put it on the screen, but um, you can read it or just listen. God says, Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. 7,000! who have never bowed to Baal. That is wildly different to what Elijah thought. Elijah, I alone am left. Well, there's 7,000 over here. In the chapters that follow, which we won't really be able to look at in this series, one of the things that comes out is the surprising resilience of the worship of the Lord within the people of Israel. People and prophets suddenly emerge who are faithful to the Lord and Ahab's efforts to squash all that out suddenly look kind of lame. And and, and at, at the very least, they're pretty unsuccessful. The Lord shows Elijah here that his perspective is just really limited and that there are things that he can't see. There are possibilities he has not imagined. This is going to be a theme that continues into the Elisha stories, which we'll get to uh, later in the year. For now, though, let's just try to learn this a little bit. I think we're reminded here that one of the disciplines of Christian faith is keeping clear that there are things we cannot see. Faith involves recognizing the smallness of our viewpoint and the limitations of our perspective. 
there are things we can't see. There are possibilities we never imagined. Elijah's sense of hopelessness came partly from forgetting this. From not entertaining the thought that things might be different to how he imagined them. Now you and I may not be given insight like Elijah was into what we don't see. But we can try to remember that this is true. We can refuse to accept the watertight logic of arguments that lead us to hopelessness and despair. Because we know that we are not God. And we don't see everything. I think Elijah's experience here ought to encourage us that the future may be open in all sorts of ways we don't know about yet. Well, the final thing that happens to Elijah doesn't happen on the mountain, but when he comes down. Obeying this command, Elijah goes and finds Elisha, son of Shaphat, and what happens when he finds him is he gets the most wonderful confirmation that what God has spoken is going to come true. I won't read it all again, but simply say that what happens in verses 19 to 21 is that Elijah calls Elisha to follow him, and he does. But more than that, he leaves his old life behind entirely. Twelve yoke of oxen, we're told he was driving in verse 19, that would have made him a wealthy man. But he offers it all as a sacrifice of thanksgiving for the good of the people around him. As he turns to his new life, Elisha's call is a profound sign of God's power to raise up people to do his work. Elijah thought he was the only one and that prophecy would die with him, but like that, out of nothing, here is a successor who will take on the work with great power. My guess is that Elisha was not the guy Elijah would have chosen. In fact, he probably would never have thought of him. Elijah is reminded that the word of God is never stuck, is not bound, and doesn't really depend upon him. God can ensure that his word goes on and on. I wonder if sometimes we need to be reminded, like Elijah was here, that the future does not in fact depend upon us. How easily we put ourselves at the center of the picture as the linchpin without which nothing will work. How easily we make our own actions or our own church or tradition or our country the crucial thing that must not fail, the world's last hope. But we, whether we mean ourselves or our church or Sydney Anglicanism or Australia or whatever, we are just not mission critical because the word of God is never stuck, never bound, never without options. But here, as we come to the end of this sermon and this series, we need to note that this is actually pretty challenging. 
Because this is also a reminder that the future, it may not be open in the ways that we hoped it would be. The future is open to the Word of God and to the possibilities that it creates. But it may not be open to every hope of ours. This is also something Elijah learns here, and we have to pay attention to it. Many things didn't work out the way he hoped they would. In many ways, his fears did come to pass. Israel did not repent en masse. The possibilities he had not seen, they did open things up. But they probably weren't what he would have wished for. Elijah does not discover on the mountain that God is the guarantor of all his hopes and dreams. He doesn't learn that. He discovers that God is the God who opens the future in his own freedom and for his own purpose. To know that the future is not closed down because it is in God's hands Brothers and sisters, that is not to know that all our hopes will come to pass. We have no guarantee that the future will be bright in the ways that we hope it will be. We have no guarantee that war will not come to this country or that ecological disaster will not befall us in ways we cannot imagine. Or that the church will not become even more marginal. Or that we will not remain single. Or be able to have children. Or whatever. We have no guarantees. Because the future is not ours. But God's. And it is open, not to our purposes, but to his. Now that's a bit of a bummer. How is this a solution to hopelessness? Aren't we now back where we started? What a letdown of a sermon. But you know what? We're not back where we started. We're really not. No more than Elijah was. Even though the future did not open up in all the ways that he hoped he might have wanted it to, Elijah was renewed. He was set on his feet again and enabled to act. Why? Because he knew who this God was who opened the future and spoke this word. He was the Lord whom he had always served, the living God, and he trusted him. And we have even more reason to trust him, even more than Elijah, because we know something that Elijah did not, that this God is the Father of Jesus Christ. I say that Elijah didn't know this, but that's not quite true. For in the Gospels, we read that Elijah did actually meet Jesus. Here's how it's recorded in Mark's Gospel. 
After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. And then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Now we're going to come back to this moment in a couple of weeks. But for now, I just want us to notice that this is actually Elijah's greatest moment. Not Mount Carmel when the fire fell from heaven. Not Mount Sinai when he stood in the presence of the Lord with his mantle over his head. But here, where he got to talk to Jesus face to face. Face to face. You cannot see my face, God said to Moses. Elijah had to cover his head with his cloak. But in Jesus... God shows himself to Elijah and to us. Jesus is the fullest revelation of who God is. And we see in Jesus that God is the Father who gave his beloved son up to death and raised him from the dead to secure the future of this world once and for all beyond any power of death and darkness. He is the God who has saved this world at the cost of his beloved son and for his glory. That's who God is. That is the God who remains God and whose word goes forth again and again to open up the future to his kingdom and his righteousness, the God who says to Jesus, this is my son whom I love. When we know that, is, that it is this one who holds the future, then we never need to be hopeless. And we can surrender even our most cherished hopes. And I don't say this lightly in the knowledge that he is good and he is good to us and that in the end there will be nothing other than the life that is in Jesus Christ. The future may not be bright in all the ways we would love it to be, but it does shine with the grace and peace and glory of Jesus Christ. And that is enough, more than enough, to give us hope. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.